Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the uh, BTOG webinar this evening, 10th of June. Uh, thank you very much all for joining us and for giving us an hour of your Thursday evening on this beautiful evening. Um, this is ASCO 2021 in an hour, a summary in 60 minutes of the absolute cutting edge of lung cancer oncology. Um, we're very grateful for the support of our sponsors for this event, which is MSD at Novartis and Takeda, without whom this would not be possible. Um, ASCO 2020 last year was our biggest hitter, our webinar, and we very much hope that we're gonna outdo that again this year. So please, if you're on social media and you fancy tweeting away, um, you can look for these uh, hashtags uh, as you go. Uh, so welcome um, also from my colleagues in VTOG in particular, uh, Dawn uh, McKinley and Gina Stevens, who run the show. If you would like to have any information about VTOG, please do not do contact them through the email and website there. If you're not a member, why aren't you a member? You must be a member. Uh, join up as soon as you can. So a little bit of housekeeping. We're really keen for you guys to ask questions. We're going to have three presentations over about a 40, 45 minute period and then a little bit of a, a Q&A. So if you've got a question, please do ask it uh, on the uh, control panel. You can add your question. If you're feeling brave, please put your name and where you come from, because it's always fun to know who's asking the questions. Um, and the usual thing, if you give us some feedback, we might even give you a certificate of attendance um, and it's all registered with the RCP, as you might admit. So this is the order of play. Uh, my name is Tommy from Davis. I'm a medical oncologist at uh, Chelsea Westminster. Um, I have the pleasure of being the vice chair of BTOG um, and I'm comparing this evening for three outstanding speakers. Uh, we have uh, Professor Fiona Blackall, I'm just going to go back up a slide because I've skipped, um, who is the clinical lead for lung cancer at the Christie. We're followed uh, by Riyaz Shah, who is a medical oncologist from Maidstone and Tunbridge Wells Hospital. And you see they'll be doing the systemic anti-cancer therapy data. And then Clive Bedell, who's a clinical oncologist in James Cook Hospital in Middlesbrough, is going to go through the radiotherapy data. And then we're going to have a chat about a quarter past six. And we all done and dusted at about half past six. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome, and with great thanks, uh, Fiona Blackhall, who's going to kick us off with the beginnings of the systemic anti-cancer therapy updates from ASCO 2021. Fiona, over to you. Thank you very much indeed, Tom, and good evening, everybody out there. Thank you for joining. It's a real pleasure to be part of this whirlwind, ASCO 2021 in an hour, a big ask. And we have our titles that we were assigned, and due to the content over the weekend, we've woven in a few uh, surprise features um, along the way. So I've uh, retitled mine Accelerating Progress in Treating Oncogenic-Driven Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, can we keep up? And uh, I'll get the, the timer on. These are my disclosures and off we go. So we are all very familiar with the, the concept of non-small cell lung cancer, no longer a single disease entity, a common cancer, but comprised of often rare oncogenic driven subsets that require different treatment. And the uh, panel that and pie chart that you see there probably overestimates the proportion of EGFR for our UK population and relates uh, principally to non-squamous, non-small cell. So we know EGFR best, the, the younger colleagues uh, among you out there, younger than I, will have only ever known a world in which we seek EGFR uh, sub subsets and the challenge that we have because of the progress 
for that subset is treatment of acquired resistance to osimertinib. Osimertinib, of course, a third generation TKI, now used first line uh, with an approval during uh, COVID by NICE. So here, um, in this panel, you see a nice illustration of the molecular heterogeneity that arises on resistance, EGFR dependent resistance mechanisms, MET dependent, other pathways like PIK3CA, unknown, and transformations to histology such as small, so uh, small cell. Well, the first abstract then is adopting approach of a strategy of targeting um, two mechanisms, in this case, using amivantamab and lazertinib to target EGFR and MET mechanisms of mutation. Amivantamab is a monoclonal bispecific antibody that targets both EGFR and MET, also has an immune cell directing activity. Lazertinib, a third generation EGFR TKI. And in the interest of time, I won't go through all the eligibility, but note a relatively small cohort, 45 patients, uh, brain metastases in 29% and prior treatment with often several TKIs. The uh, bottom line is that the response rate in the whole cohort is 36%. Um, this nice slide by Nicholas Girard, who discussed this abstract in ASCO, and he pointed out that efficacy is driven by resistance mechanisms in the main, with which I agree. You can see there that in MET-based resistance, overall response rate 75%. But the numbers of patients informing this are really very small. So another strategy is a strategy of, of one drug uh, to um, tackle multiple resistance mechanisms. And here we've got data presented by Patsy Jane, who of course pioneered our knowledge and understanding of EGFR mutation as the predictive biomarker for EGFR TKIs uh, in the early days. And he presented on this agent that targets HER3, um, patrutumab and Derex-Tecan. And this is an interesting agent. It's an antibody drug conjugate. So HER3 is one of the four family members of the EGFR family. It's not known to be mutated or amplified, but it is expressed. The protein is, is expressed in 83% of non-small cell tumors. So this antibody drug conjugate delivers a cytotoxic topoisomerase 1 inhibitor payload to cells expressing anti-HER3. And so here, what I wanted to show you was this waterfall plot that within it is embedded the resistance mechanisms for each individual patient. And this agent of interest demonstrates activity across uh, the diverse mechanisms of uh, resistance. So in, in summary, a response rate of 39%, a median PFS, which is uh, quite compelling, 8.2 months in this difficult to treat uh, and uh, resistant refractory population, deemed to be manageable with a low rate of discontinuation due to AEs, but still in early development. And my uh, take home message on this is that there are multiple strategies ongoing to target EGFR TKI resistant disease, multiple resistant mechanisms. It is encouraging to see potential options that are less individualized, might not need individual repeat biopsies, 
for example, but there is still much to tease out for that, I envisage we'll need complex trial designs, multi-arm uh, biomarker correlations. So let's move now to subsets within subsets. So within EGFR, we have the challenge of uncommon EGFR mutant um, cancer bearing an exon 20 insertion, and also a smaller subset of EGFR2 or RB2, HER2, various names for the same gene, again, uh, often bears an exon 20 insertion or amplification. And our standard of care internationally for these subtypes is still chemotherapy. So here you can see a phase one uh, trial that has evaluated an agent called DZ ZD9008. Uh, this is an irreversible inhibitor of uh, EGFR exon 20. And you can see with the waterfall plot there that uh, there is activity across uh, multiple doses of 100 milligram the schedule and above and across different EGFR exon 20 insertion subtypes with an overall response rate of 39.6%. So this is a nice summary slide that I wanted to include. There was updated data presented for Mobisertinib and Helena Yu discussed the current landscape of targeting EGFR or exon 20. I'll draw your attention to the response rate across uh, these agents, Mobisertinib, Amivantinib, Osimertinib, CLN081, Posiotinib, response rates ranging from 15% up to 40% for Amivantamab that is um, currently approved in China and does have an accelerated FDA approval. Mobisertinib and similarly um, has accelerated approval and uh, the progression-free survivals there around seven, eight months. I'll also just draw your attention to efficacy of these agents across all exon 20 insertion subtypes. There is molecular heterogeneity. So we have approvals on the horizon, but I think more data is needed on optimal targeted therapy to use frontline and efficacy compared to chemotherapy as the standard uh, is needed alongside head-to-head -head comparisons. And there will be a repeating theme on that additional data to truly understand which agents are the best to use in our patients. So for HER2 mutation, this is a nicely named R2D2 trial, and it combines trastuzumab, pertuzumab, both monoclonals targeting HER2, of course, with slightly different mechanisms of action, and with docetaxel, a French intergroup study. The response rate, 28.9%, median PFS, 6.8 months, median OS, 17.6 months, Interesting, but a grade three, four uh, treatment related AE rate of 64%, which is not so surprising. We know about these drugs in our everyday practice. And we also have other agents targeting HER2 previously reported on uh, that are antibody drug conjugates uh, delivering cytotoxics to HER2 expressing cells, higher response rates, 50%, 62% in these series, again, less than 50 patients in each. So um, like the last situation, more data on the optimal to use frontline, efficacy compared to chemotherapy and head-to-head -head comparisons of these targeted agents in due course. 
Okay, let's switch to MET now. Again, uh, this is a challenging subtype, subsets within subsets. And the issue for us, um, for a very pleomorphic receptor with, with multiple biological roles, many of which we have still not fully teased out, the challenge is which MET inhibitor to use for exon 14 skipping mutation, which for MET amplification. And this is in the context of MET amplification de novo rather than an emergent resistant mechanism to an EGFR TKI. And this was a nice uh, discussion done by Dr. Pacello at Axon uh, at ASCO who summarized the MET abstracts. There were updated analyses for capmatinib in MET exon 14 skipping um, mutation and bearing tumors and for tapotinib in the bottom panel for MET de novo application. And previously uh, on the top panel, we had seen uh, for tapotinib in a study of 152 patients, a uh, response rate of 43% for patients with tumors bearing MET exon 14 skipping mutation but um, we didn't have data for amplification, which you can see there in the bottom panel, far smaller number of patients, 24, a 71.4% uh, response rate. And uh, then the converse for capmatinib uh, response rate there in the top panel in the context of skipping mutation of uh, 65, 50 to 65%. Uh, compared to uh, 29, 40% depending on prior treatment in the context of amplification. So uh, what does this mean for us? Again, we need head-to-head -head comparisons. I think it's really difficult in these relatively small series with these difficult agents to tease them apart and, and to work out which we need to select um, as the optimal for our patients. Okay, let's get to what uh, we are most focused on at this point in time. KRAS, we've known about the subset for longer than any other. In lung cancer, it has been very difficult to drug. We do now have a focus on G12C inhibitors. And just to note that KRAS, again, we have subsets within subsets. G12C is the commonest, and this is uh, where we have data, again, updated data for the G12C inhibitor, Sertoricib, new data on overall survival, uh, which is now mature, updated safety, and the first subgroup analyses. Beware, this is still single arm data. 124 patients, subjective response rate, 37.1%, median PFS, 6.8 months, median OS 12.5 months. And this nice summary slide by Christine Lovely, who did an excellent discussion. Important to note that uh, tolerance was uh, broadly good. Um, over 50% of patients had had more than two lines of therapy. 93% current smokers, very different to our, our other druggable subsets that are often predominantly in never smoking associated lung cancer. And down at the bottom there, for patients who have received one prior line of therapy, uh, an overall survival median of 17.7 months. So 
This is a key slide. We know that in real world outcome data on standard of care, chemotherapy and immune therapy for patients with KRAS mutant tumors, co-expression of STK11 and KEEP1 is often associated with worse outcomes. This subgroup analysis is interesting in that co-mutation with STK11 and with wild-type KEEP1 appears to be associated with most favorable median PFS of 11 months, median OS 15.3 months. But this is exploratory and uh, this is based on a small number of patients. But what it points to is understanding not just about KRAS mutation, the variant, whether it's G12C or not, but also the co-mutations for selecting our treatment. So randomized comparison to docetaxel is in progress. First line data is needed of comparison against chemo with or without IO. So accelerating progress is clear in, in treating oncogenic driven non-small cell, can we keep up? Well, uh, earlier in May, we saw the first approval under what is termed Project Orbis of Ozimertinib in uh, resected non-small cell, and we'll be coming onto this a bit later on. Clive will speak to uh, this arena, but in this context, Project Orbis has been possible through Brexit. We are now joined up uh, with the, the FDA and other countries in, in a rapid oversight and approval mechanism. Just before ASCO, the uh, Project Orbis mechanism granted accelerated approval to uh, Satorisib. So it will be coming to our shores very soon and sooner potentially than we have ever seen something uh, approved by the FDA coming to us before. Critical is equitable access to genomic testing and that what message to the wider community that we have to test. It's not a single disease. At ASCO, we saw in the oral presentations, I think for the first time, real world uh, data from community settings showing that less than 50% of patients have that gold standard NGS profiling of more than one gene in a one-stop shop. And we also saw discrepancies according to race with uh, reduced testing in black and African American patients compared to white. We don't know whether we have the same discrepancies in the UK. So the theme of ASCO was equity, every patient, every day, everywhere. And we in the UK in uh, April of this year saw our national NHS England Genomics Test Directory go live, a national network of seven genomics laboratory hubs nationally commissioned. We don't have to fight locally for testing for, for new genes anymore. We have nationally commissioned panels. We can do that one-stop shop. We have clinical genomic scientists in those labs who will interpret the data and point us to which mutations are druggable. We have a rise and scanning process to flag tests that we're going to need in the foreseeable future. And so with that, I will get to my last night slide, acknowledge presenters and discussants of ASCO 2021. The virtual format was fabulous. We have a fabulous BTOC team who keep us moving and thinking about how to evolve our care in real time. Thanks to all of you for listening and keeping up to date. Accelerating progress in treating oncogenic driven lung cancer really is in your hands. 
it is challenging to deliver. There are huge challenges, but we can and must make this work for our patients. Our oncology new normal is test equity, every eligible patient, every day, everywhere. And those labs are moving to seven day working. So thank you. I will move on now rapidly to Riaz, who is a, a key opinion leader. Uh, his tweets uh, keep us all uh, on the edge of our seats when uh, we're watching international congresses virtually these days. And he also keeps us up to date with what to grow in our gardens. So Riaz, over to you. Thank you very much for asking me to speak. Uh, welcome everybody. Um, these are my disclosures. Uh, caveats, this talk is designed to be relevant to UK practice. I know this could be streamed on the internet so various people from different bits of the world can, can uh, watch this and it may not seem completely relevant to you. And also there may be differences in devolved nations uh, in terms of which drugs are available. Uh, and if I say something incorrect, uh, my apologies. So the, my task is to talk about immunotherapy trials in advanced disease. And you can all take a deep breath and relax. It's been an absolute whirlwind few years. Every six months, something new's come out. But this ASCO, pretty much nothing practice changing in advanced disease. So we can all chill and just have a little bit of a gentle saunter through some data for a bit of fun for the next 15 minutes. So the first trial I'm going to talk about is this, Checkmate 9LA. Many of you will not be familiar with this uh, because it's not a registered uh, combination in the UK in terms of uh, available through our health service. But this is a chemo IO versus chemo trial in patients with advanced recurrent non-small cell lung cancer who'd had no previous systemic therapy, no EGFR or ALK mutations and had a good performance status. And these patients were randomized to a standard chemotherapy arm of four cycles with optional pemetrexed maintenance. Or alternatively, the interventional arm, which was just two cycles of chemo only, but with dual immune checkpoint blockade. So both nivolumab and ipilimumab, ipilimumab at the lighter dose of one milligram per kilogram. The immunotherapy was given until uh, disease progression or two years. Primary endpoint was overall survival. Now, just when you look at the data, just remember something that I think is interesting. If you look at how many of the patients randomized in these arms got subsequent treatment, patients in the chemotherapy arm, only 37% of them went on to receive any form of immunotherapy after their progression event. So important to understand that because it would suggest that that chemo arm perhaps might be underperforming. Now, this is the updated OS at two years, and you can see a clear difference, hazard ratio 0.72, the landmark at 24 months goes from 26 to 38 months, so that's great. Chemo IO is better than chemo. Uh, if you look at the forest plot, I uh, will uh, want you to have a look at the bottom section that looks at different PDL1 splits, and you can see that irrespective of PDL1, there is a strong OS benefit to NIVO IP plus chemo, and, and really no difference, consistent. Uh, point estimate for less than one, greater than one, one to 49 and greater than 50%. A couple of things that are notable, the point estimate doesn't look very good for patients over the age of 75, nor does it look very good for patients who are never smokers. And um, now look at the curves here uh, by uh, PDL1 expression. So on the left, we've got PDL1 less than 1%, greater than 1% in the middle. That obviously includes patients with high PDL1 greater than 50%. 
and then PDL1 greater than 50% on its own. And we've seen these with Checkmate, uh, uh, check, uh, Keynote 189. Uh, I don't think there are any big surprises here. You see a consistent signal of benefit for the uh, chemo IO arm. Um, how does this compare to Keynote 189? We'll have a look at that. That's Keynote 189 in PDL1 less than 1%. So look at that curve and compare it to the curve. Um, uh, on the left, PDL1 less than 1%. There's not much in it. Obviously, the uh, Keynote 189 data is more mature. So we've got three year data as opposed to two year data there. And if we look again at uh, the greater than 50% population in Keynote 189 and compare it to the right hand curve of greater than 50%, again, uh, nothing too dramatic there um, in terms of trying to make a, a cross trial comparison, which of course we should never do but we will. Um, now, uh, Checkmate 9LA toxicity. Now, this is really interesting. So if you look at the top table, any treatment-related adverse event, 92% with chemo IO, 88% with chemo, grade three to four percent, grade three, four toxicities, 48% versus 38. So 10% increase in grade three treatment-related adverse events. And serious treatment-related adverse events, grade three to four, go from 15 to 26%. So there is a toxicity burden associated with chemo IO. If you look at the bottom table, uh, that is chronologically looking at the incidence of uh, grade three to four toxicities by each cycle over time, we see most toxicities occur early on. But I think it's very notable that there is, you know, 5% of patients are getting quite significant toxicity with chemo IO out to almost two years. So, you know, what we know from practice and using these drugs is the tox can happen at any time. You must never let your guard down, must always be vigilant. Um, next slide, there we go. Um, if you look at patients that discontinue therapy, they seem to do better. Um, there seems to be some link between discontinuation, between toxicity and benefit. I wouldn't read too much into that. What's interesting is the hazard ratios by histology and PDL1. So there's an observation here uh, that uh, uh, Mary Redmond, the discussant, picked out. The hazard ratio in PDL1, less than 1% squamous cancer, was 0.48. And in Checkmate 227, where Nivo Ipi was also used, it was 0.49 in squamous. And if you look at other trials of chemo IO in less than 1% squamous that have used single agent immunotherapy, just one drug like pembrolizumab, the hazard ratio is higher. So there's just this question mark of does an IOIO combo have particular uh, efficacy in PDL1 negative squamous tumors? Unknown question. So what does this mean? Well, it's an active agent. Does it have any evidence that we should use this over and above Keynote 189? I don't think so. It doesn't really change my practice. It's not a, a, a treatment I can prescribe, but if it were, and a patient who was really fit came through my doors with squamous lung cancer and their PDL1 was low, being a natural early adopter of technology and uh, someone that likes trying things that I've never used before, I would, I would certainly offer it and think of it as an option. Next study. So this is the FDA, so the Food and Drug Administration. They are now doing uh, assessments of uh, trial data. This is an excellent study from them where they looked at all of the registered trials that they have done, looking at chemo IO versus IO, and they've done a meta-analysis. 
So essentially, they've looked at standard treatments. And obviously, we know that in the 1% to 49% group, we have trials that support the use of chemo IO, but also trials that support the use of IO. And they've decided to uh, combine all of this data and do a sort of uh, meta-analysis. Those are the trials that they looked at. We have 600, over 600 patients having chemo IO, over 500 having IO only. Some of these trials included a chemo arm. So there were 940 patients who just had chemo. They didn't present anything on those patients, which is a bit of a pity, really. And what you see with the patients in these trials is that patients receiving uh, chemo IO tend to be fairer than patients having IO alone. Uh, they tend to have a higher propensity for being current or former smokers. And they also have a higher propensity for being non-squamous, so slight imbalance in the demographics. But what you see very consistently is a signal, both in PFS and OS, that the chemo IO seems to be delivering a more consistent benefit. So median PFS from 4.2 to 7.7 months, median OS from 14.5 to 21 months. If you look at the hazard, uh, the forest plots below, uh, suggestion that in the overall survival forest plot to the right-hand side, patients over the age of 65 perhaps aren't benefiting as much. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. Um, they were very fair. They understood the limitations. This was a retrospective exploratory pooled analysis. Uh, it's not a prospective trial. Different pdl one assays were used. Uh, but the conclusion is that, you know, from the FDA approvals, looking at the data from the registration trials, there was a suggestion uh, that uh, chemo IO may be superior to IO. Um, and uh, the, um, the FDA, um, the discussant uh, essentially uh, commented on, on this and just indicated this desire that actually it'd be quite nice to have known a bit more information about the patients that just got chemotherapy and rightly highlighted our concerns over more elderly patients over 75 and patients who are, uh, are never smokers and non-squamous histology. We need a bit of prospective data collected as to what the right thing to do for those patients are. So what does this mean for the UK? Well, I don't know. For me, my practice has always been to give chemo IO to PDL one one to 49%. I only really use single agent IO if patients are not a candidate for chemo IO. And that was my position through the pandemic. So it doesn't really change my practice, but I know we all do slightly different things. And some of you may, may reflect on that and, and may want to uh, look at what you do. Now, third study I'm going to talk about is this. So this is Roche, Impower 130, 132, and 150 are three uh, chemo IO versus chemo trials. And Mark Sikinski presented this data. They've basically pooled the data from these three trials. All of them are not placebo controlled. So they're open label trials where half the patients are receiving, or well, uh, the investigational arms are getting uh, chemo with IO in the form of atezolizumab and the other patients are just getting chemo and they just pulled all of the data and looked at patients reported as having immune-related adverse events versus not and tried to ascertain whether there was a, a difference between them. And what you see in... Um, now, this is a bit confusing because the control arm here is just chemotherapy, but because of the way clinical trials get conducted, a lot of toxicities get reported and classified as IRAE. So I don't really think you need to look too much on the right-hand column, which is somewhat irrelevant because those patients are not on immune 
uh, immune therapy, but on the left-hand side, atezolizumab, it's, look at that. I mean, you know, half the patients are getting any IRAE, about a third of patients are getting a rash, 15% hepatitis, 12% hypothyroidism. So, you know, perhaps, you know, I would say to me, that looks a bit more than what I tell patients when I can consent them in clinic. So this has certainly changed the, the, the way I would discuss immunotherapy toxicity with patients a little bit. Um, and this is what they found. What they found is if you look at patients having a tezolizumab on the left-hand side, patients with IRAEs tend to do better. So you see a, a median survival of 25 months versus 13 months. Um, you see higher response rates with patients having immune-related adverse events. And you also see that patients with mild immune-related adverse events, grade one to two immune-related adverse events, do much better than patients with um, high-grade uh, uh, toxicity or no toxicity at all. Um, uh, let's not dwell on this too much because we're running out of time. But, you know, what are the issues with this? Well, the issues, immortal time bias is really important. So what that is, is that you know people who die don't report immune-related adverse events, do they? So uh, there is an imme immediate inherent bias with these data sets because the patients who are on treatment longer are the ones who are on long enough to get toxicities. And so is it really relevant? We don't know. But is this of any relevance to my clinic? And I was sitting there reflecting on what I do in clinic. And you know I think for me, it was a nice description from contemporaneous data of what IRAEs look like now. And also it gives me a little bit of a sense that, you know, I do have patients with low grade, but annoying uh, toxicities like skin rash, not grade three or four skin rash, grade one skin rash, but it is annoying. It's unsightly. Patients don't like it. They moan about it in clinic. They want, you know, they have breaks, they have steroid courses. Some may even want to come off treatment because of low grade um, grumbling immune related toxicity. So I think um, it's important to know this and, you know, this might make you persevere with the treatment perhaps a bit longer or have that conversation with the patient uh, about whether it's worth carrying on with the treatment. Um, mesothelioma, really important trial, the VIM study, UK study, Professor Fennell presented it. So this is oral vinorelbine versus uh, best supportive care. This is the randomization, active symptom control versus active symptom control plus vinorelbine. Um, patients uh, were scanned every six weeks. Uh, standard baseline demographics that you would expect for this disease. PFS benefit from 2.8 to 4.3 months, so a small benefit, nothing major, but it's statistically significant, but no survival benefit. Median was 9.1 and 9.3 months. Um, what does this mean for um, mesothelioma treatment? Well, we have first-line immunotherapy on the right-hand side. I don't think vinorelbine is going to be a second-line treatment of choice because we've got immunotherapy coming in, but we've got patients having nivo ipi. They may get platinum pemetrexid rechallenge subsequent line, and then you may use vinorelbine in those patients after that. But patients having chemo first line, you'll always want to give them nivolumab subsequently, depending on what's available. But certainly, vinorelbine is a subsequent line option. Uh, probably third line and beyond, and it's it's not unreasonable to try it. Uh, remember, nivolumab particularly works well in non-epithelioid, and at any point in these uh, uh, in the mesothelioma treatment pathway, clinical trials should be considered. 
So those are the main studies, a couple of posters that were interesting. So the microbiome, we know that uh, the uh, bacterial um, makeup of your gut is very important in regulating your immune system. This is a French study looking at this bug called Akkermansia. Uh, and what they show is that patients basically split into those that have reasonable amounts of this bug in their gut, in their stools versus those that don't. And those that do seem to have uh, uh, better outcomes. Uh, there seems to be a, a, a relationship with relative abundance, as in a sweet spot, too much is bad, too little is low, but there's a sweet spot of abundance of this bug that helps. Uh, and also they showed some sort of association with negative outcomes with using antibiotics. I don't really know enough about this, but I know it's an area of huge interest um, and we should keep our ear, ear to the ground on this one because it's going to evolve. This is another study looking at patients, a retrospective Veterans Administration review of patients who had antibiotics either before or after starting CPI. And they basically consistently show uh, poorer outcomes in patients who were given antibiotics. So, um, I mean, I don't know what this means. It's interesting. It's an evolving story. I think we just need to keep an eye on this field. And that's all I'm going to say. Thank you very much. Thank you, Riaz. It's very kind. We're going to hand over to um, Clive, who's going to now take us through, Clive Vidal, the, uh, the radiotherapy sites. Um, and the clinical oncology perspective of early and locally advanced disease. Clive, over to you. Thanks so much, uh, Tom, and thanks to our previous speakers who've done a fantastic uh, overview so far. Um, if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed by it all, then um, you're not alone. Um, I've been feeling a bit that way for the last five to 10 years in uh, lung cancer. I also manage prostate cancer. So that's precisely why you really need to be a member of BTOP, because this is, this is the organisation that will really help put... Uh, uh, and distill all the knowledge together and, you know, uh, allow us to really understand what's going on and make sense of all the data. So um, hopefully I can follow on from my colleagues. Um, so um, it's not just going to be a focus on radiotherapy uh, this evening. Um, uh, I've, I've been a bit bullied by my by, by the uh, medical oncologists to uh, to be both a radiation oncologist, a medical oncologist and a surgical oncologist tonight. So um, I'll be covering various um, topics. I'm going to try and get through 47 slides in the next 15 minutes, so it's going to be rapid. Um, we're going to start up uh, with um, a surgery versus Sabre uh, debate uh, by discussing the STARS trial, and that also brings in the VIOLET study, the very good UK study. Um, we're going to, then going to talk about some adjuvant, neoadjuvant uh, data, uh, get back to some uh, radiation oncology with the Pacific update and also some small cell data. And just to note, there's some other tidbits for uh, um, radiation oncologists with um, Keynote 799 and AFT16 and the abstract numbers are there if you want them. So um, this was um, the STARS trial presented uh, by uh, Joe uh, Chang, which was, um, uh, it's, it's a very interesting uh, uh, study really. Uh, it basically started with failure. Uh, so it was, it was, a, it was a single um, uh, uh, randomized uh, single center randomized um, control trial at, at, at uh, the MD Anderson. Um, it, it didn't recruit. Um, and uh, so they uh, joined up with the Roselle group uh, to, to produce this paper that got published in the Lancet Oncology caused the great stir because it showed that look, Sabre is better than surgery. But just look at the numbers there. Um, this is two failed trials. Uh, and uh, very small numbers of patients. Uh, so obviously uh, there was a lot of criticism. So uh, they decided not to give up. They uh, just expanded the study into a single arm study and um, con 
contemporaneously uh, compared it uh, to the MD Anderson uh, vatsalobectomy uh, cohort that they were treating uh, at the same time and did a propensity-based matching uh, process. Uh, and as you can see, the eligibility were, you know, operable patients. Uh, and uh, the patients were treated with either 54 gray and three fractions or 50 and four fractions if they were more central disease. And we can see astonishing results here. Um, I've seen similar results from the Japanese population, but this is, um, you know, U.S. population. OK, is the MD Anderson? There's going to be patient selection. These are small tumors. Most of them are what stage 1A tumors. But, you know, you've got three year overall survival of 91 percent, five year, 87 percent. This is this is remarkable data. Um, and when they compared it uh, with the, uh, you know, VATS, um, uh, lobectomy and um, lymph node uh, dissection patients, uh, you can see there was there's no difference in survival between the two groups and 80 patients in, in, in each group. So still not massive numbers, but, um, you know, this is this is interesting data um, there. Um, uh, was a higher uh, regional recurrence um, in the uh, saber arm, uh, but some of these patients were salvaged either by further radiation or surgery. Um, although we have to remember some of these patients were followed up with um, PET CT scanning. So we have to bear that in mind. That's not something we would do in the UK. Um, so in terms of the toxicity is incredibly well tolerated, um, uh, hardly any toxicity at all, which is um, obviously the, the great um, benefit of Sabre. And the conclusion was that, you know, Sabre is not inferior to, to VATS, lobectomy for optical disease. There is higher regional recurrence, but it can be salvaged and it didn't compromise overall survival and uh, progression-free survival. So this is potentially a very promising approach. Clearly, this is not level one data. Uh, you know, th th this is not comparative data, but um, I think it's very hard to ignore how good that survival was. Uh, and let's remember it was compared to um, vaxlobectomy and um, Eric Lim's uh, uh, group with a violet study, um, uh, which uh, I'm very proud that uh, Middlesbrough contributed to this through our thoracic surgeons with, with Joel Dunning there. Uh, with, with a large number of patients going into the study, uh, th they've showed that this is the standard of care now. Uh, so Sabre's been compared to the standard of care in, in lung cancer, and Valerie, Valerie Rush did a nice overall summary, uh, just in a slide really, that confirmed the uh, early results from, uh, from the violets, that, it, that VATS is associated with less pain and fewer complications. And then at one year, um, when they looked at physical function, pain, complications, quality of life and uh, cost effectiveness, it was superior in all of those areas. So this is clearly a, a standard of care. So my take home measure is um, I still believe that surgery is a standard of care because we, we don't have uh, level one evidence to prove otherwise. And, you know, vaxlobectomy is that standard. Um, I think there's some argument in the uh, lung cancer uh, thoracic community about the role of limited anatomical resections. Um, so that still has to um, be resolved. Um, but Sabre can offer excellent results in, in operable patients. Um, so, I, I, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic and when we've got five million people on a surgical waiting list, um, and especially in older patients, um, I, I certainly think that um, at least borderline patients, we should be considering Sabre for, for that group as an alternative. And I think that could be very important, uh, you know, politically uh, to help with current problems. But obviously, we've got phase three trials that are recruiting pretty well, Valor and Stable Mates, and we eagerly await those results. So I've uh, got my medical oncology hat on now. So there was the Empower 010 trial that was pre presented by uh, Heather Wakeley, which is this phase three study of atezolizumab versus best supportive care after adjuvant chemotherapy in resected stage 1B to 3A non-small lung cancer. Um, fairly simple um, uh, 
design, uh, big numbers of patients, uh, 1,200 um, patients were randomized. Uh, the main, uh, it's quite an interesting statistical analysis that Riaz might want to talk about afterwards, uh, but the, the main primary endpoint was DFS at this stage, and there'll be further endpoints that will be uh, reported later on. Uh, and the bottom line is, if, if you're pdl one positive, there's significant disease-free survival benefit of 60 versus uh, 48%. Uh, and um, when they looked at um, uh, stage three, uh, two to three A, all those randomized patients, uh, again, there was a benefit of um, uh, 55.7 to 49.4. Um, but um, when they included the stage one B uh, group, uh, statistical significance was lost at that point. Um, Biomarker-wise, um, very similar to uh, the Pacific trial, look that um, if you had a, a higher um, pdl one status, uh, you tended to do better. So um, very, very interesting uh, biomarker work on in this study. Uh, and, and basically, it, the safety was consistent with other studies in, in the metastatic set, setting using a tezolizumab. Uh, so um, the conclusions, and there was a, there was an excellent um, discussant, um, Dr. Priya Troska from uh, Massachusetts uh, uh, General, um, who who basically said it's a very well designed trial. Um, it improves um, disease free survival in PDL one positive and stage two to three A patients, and it's something that we should certainly be uh, considering uh, using. Um, but I think obviously we need to wait for the overall survival results. But um, watch this space. Uh, so on to a couple of um, Asian studies um, uh, regarding jafitinib, first of all, but then uh, olotinib. So um, this is the impact trial presented by Dr. Tarda. Um, and uh, basically, this was uh, completely resected stage two to three non-small cell lung cancer. We were then randomized to either jafitinib uh, or uh, cisfinarelbine. Um, and uh, the long and short of it is uh, there was crossing of the uh, survival curve there on the disease-free survival. And not surprisingly, because of that, the, there was no difference in overall survival between the jafitinib and the chemotherapy arm. So um, this failed to demonstrate superiority of disease-free survival of um, uh, jafitinib versus chemo. Um, but it was acceptable uh, in terms of its toxicity, very mild. Um, and they talked about, well, it might justify the use of adjuvant jafitinib in a selective sub group of patients that weren't fit for chemo, but I think it's pretty much been overtaken by um, the osimertinib story. Um, but the main reason I'm presenting these two trials is actually um, the, the fact that, um, uh, th that they've not done particularly well against chemotherapy shows the importance of chemotherapy in this group of patients, and we shouldn't underestimate that chemotherapy is still a very important uh, uh, modality of treatment. So here we, get, here we go again with um, overall survival, no difference between allotinib and gemcitabine carboplatin group for this study. So um, another study uh, was um, uh, the neoadjuvant study, uh, uh, the checkmate study of nivolumab and uh, platinum doublet chemotherapy uh, in resectable disease. Um, and uh, this patient randomized 358 patients uh, to get uh, three cycles of uh, nevo and chemo versus chemo alone. Um, and it, 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 the, the main primary endpoints are pathological complete response and event-free survival. Um, uh, and let me just get to the next slide. Uh, you can see actually in the Nevo chemo group, um, more people actually completed the neoadjuvant study. Um, there was, um, the operation time was less and actually fewer patients ended up requiring uh, pneumonectomy. Um, 
And in terms of the pathological complete response rates, you can see very impressive uh, PCR, PCR rates across the board here um, compared to chemotherapy alone. And again, the depth of pathological regression, really quite impressive uh, in this uh, group of patients that had the combination treatment. So this is uh, exciting data. Um, this study um, uh, is, 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 is uh, an interim report at present, and we uh, await the, the main primary endpoint of um, event-free survival. Um, but at this stage, in terms of the surgical outcomes, um, uh, we've, we know that, um, uh, that more patients were able to get complete resection and, and fewer patients underwent pneumonectomy who had their combination treatments. Uh, so um, this is uh, you know, a really exciting study. Uh, and again, this is going to be a watch this space uh, in terms of uh, potential uh, standard of care in future. So those take home messages for the sort of neoadjuvant adjuvant therapies of that basically that EGFR TKIs didn't produce overall survival benefits to compare to chemotherapy. And a lot of this has been uh, superseded by osimertinib. But um, we should very much uh, remember that chemotherapy is still very beneficial in this group, especially in uh, stage three patients. And that shouldn't be ignored. And we know in the Adjuras trial, over half the patients that were randomized did, did receive chemotherapy as well. So that's very important not to forget about chemotherapy in EGFR positive patients. And the tezolimizumab looks really promising um, for um, the pdl one positive subgroup. Um, and again, the neoadjuvant work, as I've mentioned there, with chemoimmunotherapy is also looking very exciting. So um, lots of things to look forward to in the next few years. So um, I'm just going to update you um, about the Pacific trial. We've heard lots about it already, so I'm not going to go through uh, the actual uh, um, uh, details of the, uh, the trial in any uh, 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 great detail because uh, I think we know it very, very well. Um, just to show you, though, that this um, five-year data is very, very impressive. We've got the updated progression-free survival of 35% versus 19.9%. Uh, and this remarkable uh, five-year overall survival of 49.7% versus 36.3%. Uh, uh, so this is um, these are fantastic survival curves. And uh, as we can see, the gap between the curves has, has remained the same right, right the way through. And um, just go back that slide quickly. I think a really important um, uh, part of the curve here is, is, is actually the placebo arm, but you've seen there the 36.3% five-year survival. It is an intention to uh, treat group, but um, that's, um, you know, uh, really quite dramatic compared to the historical 15.1% uh, uh, for uh, chemo radiation from the OPRAN meta-analysis. So that shows we're staging patients a lot better. Uh, there's probably better uh, radiotherapy techniques as well. Um, but the key thing is here, um, you know, that's a high cure rate, and this is a curable stage of disease. So we need to keep beating this drum uh, to the UK lung cancer community that stage three disease is a curable disease, uh, and we need to treat it as such. So um, uh, we've got impressive five-year survival uh, for both arms, fantastic absolute survival benefit of 9.5%, um, and a third of patients remain free of disease at five years. You know, this is, this is remarkable stuff. Um, so, um, again, another um, really encouraging bit of news um, from ASCO this year. Uh, and so um, we can't forget small cell lung cancer. So this is um, a summary of the uh, um, phase three high dose once daily thoracic radiotherapy, which was 70 gray versus the twice daily BID to receive regime. This is the CALGB RTOG 0538 uh, trial. Um, uh, so initially there were three arms, but the... Um, 
com concomitant boost arm of 61.2 gray that was dropped because of poor accrual accrual it actually took 11 years to recruit to this trial so it shows how difficult it is to get these people into these studies so congratulations to the authors of this study and uh, led by dr bogart here um so um the bottom line was there was no um uh difference um in overall survival between the two groups but there was a trend towards um, a better five-year survival in the in the once daily 70 gray arm uh, with five uh, 35 percent five-year survival but again 29 percent five-year survival you know around this 30 percent mark is very very good for small cell um and again uh, progression-free survival no difference um so um just to raise a little um, point about the adverse events, um, especially around dysphagia, because in the Tarusi trial, um, that was one of the reasons why 45BD was a real issue, because about 30% had grade three esophagitis. And you can see uh, in, in this latest study, it's down to 10%. So again, this is probably due to you know more modern radiotherapy techniques uh, reducing uh, complications like the radiation esophagitis. So um, I think that was a really important point made by the discussant there as well. Um, so um, the conclusion for that study is that, that this uh, failed to prove that the 70 grade significantly improved overall survival compared with the standard uh, 45 BD. Um, but it wasn't designed to, be, uh, to, to um, assess whether it was non-inferior to 45 grade BD. So um, it's the best evidence available for high dose um, once daily thoracic radiotherapy in uh, small cell lung cancer. Um, so um, there's clearly further analysis from this trial. And just to put that um, into perspective, um, in terms of looking at the Tarusi group in the CONVERT trial, we can see that um, all, all very similar along here. So um, I think 45 gray remain BD remains the standard of care, but it's very interesting in the United States and, and Europe. It's not, you know, that commonly used. So, you know, there are problems with this. Uh, so I don't think we fully resolved the, um, the issue of what's best to do in um, small, small cell lung cancer because of the problems associated with BD radiotherapy. And, you know, do we need to look at the sort of hypofractionated regimens? I know we've discussed that in the UK. Um, so, um, you know, I think this is a really important area that we need to be looking at. So um, I'll leave it there um, and I'll hand back over to Tom. Hopefully I haven't gone over time. Tom managed to get through 47 uh, in some way or other anyway. Fantastic. Hi, that was magnificent. Thank you so much. Um, we have a, a few minutes for some questions. We've got loads of questions coming through on my phone. So excuse me as I look a little bit to my left. If I can ask my colleague to reappear. And again, thank you to all three of you. Uh, it, it's a huge effort um, to the audience, by the way, for asking people to go and go through all the ASCO abstracts and uh, condense all the information um, over a weekend, and a very sunny weekend at that, um, for uh, this talk. So I'm very grateful. Um, Question from an anonymous person uh, for Fiona. Um, it's been pointed out by Giro that the overall response rate for amivantamab was 50% in patients with unknown resistance mutations. What are your thoughts on this since it accounts for the majority of resistance to Ozymertinib, which I think is that's a good point. We, I do sometimes do, often do um, resistance mutation testing for Ozymertinib. We don't often see the METs that perhaps you see in ASCO. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I didn't delve into the detail through time, but there was a, a distinction needs to be made between definitely unknown, because all known mechanisms have been excluded, and then unknown just because profiling wasn't possible. So it's a little bit muddy and difficult to uh, know exactly how to 
interpret that, whether there truly is a predictive biomarker underpinning or whether, um, and, and, and therefore driving that uh, response rate or uh, whether it is uh, truly a, a sort of generic as an empiric uh, phenomenon that is independent of known mechanisms. And on a similar theme, a question about MET and uh, Lezertinib and Amivantamab, the, the benefit of that combination seems to be in the MET group, but not a particularly common resistance mechanism that we, if we look, we find. Yeah. Is that a little bit disappointing? Do you find the Lezertinib and Ami data a bit disappointing? Are you more excited by the HER3 data? Or is it really numbers too small, really can't tell? Yeah, I, I think it's really tough. We know in practice as well that, that there's a... A, a lack of clarity around the definition of MET amplification, different methods of testing, different cut points. Uh, it may be dependent on the site that is biopsied. We know there's increasing heterogeneity. Uh, we try it for study entry to biopsy a progressing lesion, but even then, the mechanism may be different in, in one site compared to another. So, uh, so I, I think it is really challenging to unpick and dissect these single cohort studies, you know, heterogeneous biology. Uh, we, we do need that um, platform style approach where we can have some comparisons in a, a single trial design potentially. Um, you know, there's a great deal more to be done, but certainly there are signals. And um, you know, I'm milder than the rest of you put together, perhaps not quite, but I remember sitting through ASCOs, which when it was negative study after negative study. And, and so we are seeing signals, even though we're not seeing up at the you know, 70% for the ALK inhibitors, for example. Thank you, Fiona. I can confirm I am only 17 years old. Um, Riaz, there's some disappointment uh, in our audience about VIM um, and the negative result there. It's a bit of a stalwart of the limited options we have in mesothelium. The question here is, with no OS benefit, is VIM a, is Vinarelbin a reasonable option for mesothelioma anymore? Well, I don't think you can, I don't think you can pull out and use a lack of OS benefit uh, as a reason not to prescribe and then not have that policy uniformly across your practice. There are plenty of things that we're giving at the moment that haven't shown an OS benefit, adjuvant osimertinib, for example. So, so OS is a very complex endpoint now in a, in a, in a space that's getting very busy. I, I think that um, the thing to remember about mesothelioma patients that's different from lung cancer patients is Yes, there are very frail mesothelioma patients, but <clears throat> they are the mainstay of phase one units. You know, there are a whole bunch of really fit, non-smoking mesothelioma patients who live for very long periods of time and receive multiple lines of therapy, unlike what we're used to with our lung cancer practice. So at the moment, there's only really one licensed treatment, isn't there? First line chemo, nivo ipi, it might be licensed. I don't know. It's, it's about to get licensed, I think, or, or has been in the last few hours. Um, but uh, so they, they run out of licensed options very quickly. So um, when you look at that data very carefully, what you will see is very low response rates, very low um low numbers, it's not very impressive, but you will see a very, look at that waterfall plot, there's a small number of patients who do incredibly well and are on the drug for ages. 
and we don't know how to pick those people out. So <clears throat> my own personal experience of using vinorolbine in mesothelioma is it's largely um, uh, disappointing. And then every now and then out of the blue, you get a patient who responds beautifully well to it and is on it for a very long period of time. And as a doctor, you have no doubt that that was a positive drug for that patient. You know, you, you saw radiological response, you saw symptom improvement, and you saw them on therapy for nine months, 10 months, a year. But yeah, it's disappointing. I don't think it means you can't use it. I do think it's an option. Thank you very much. Because I have a lot of interest in uh, on in, in your multidisciplinary talk, as you said, <laughs> to cover most of lung cancer. Um, we're very grateful. Um, so um, in Power 110, if you look at the the, the first hierarchy, so it's a complicated hierarchical design. The first group, which is the PDL1 positive, stage two to stage three A's, because it had a ratio of 0.66. Is this a game changer? Um, is this now adjuvant? Uh, uh, immunotherapy, or do we need more? Do we need OS data? Do we need to separate the PDL1 highs from the PDL1 just positives? Yeah, there was some really interesting discussion in the meeting about, you know, is disease free survival good enough um, compared to overall survival in terms of, you know, changing practice? Um, and actually, uh, the the discussion um, did suggest that this 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 is certainly going to change practice in the US, but we know that's very different. Um, but I think it's going to be really interesting um, in terms of what the sort of regulatory bodies say here uh, about wh whether to go for that. I mean, if, if I was a patient for uh, a relative of mine, um, I, I'd want that treatment. If I was PDL one positive, especially if I was sort of 50 percent plus, you'd really you'd really want to go for it, wouldn't you? I don't know what you feel about it as the medical oncology side, but I, I'm pretty impressed by that. Um, so. Um, for me, um, yes, I think it's going to be practice changing. But again, I think the UK probably wait for the overall survival uh, you know, data to come out. Um, and it's immature. They did show it, but it's immature at the moment. So we can't um, you know, make much of that. But um, I think there's a big debate about the role of disease-free survival versus overall survival. We've seen it in the adjuvant EGFR population. I think that's slightly different um, to the immunotherapy groups. But yeah, be, I think that's a, a good one for discussion. At, uh, maybe BTOG um, to have, uh, talking about those sort of endpoints and what, what what we should be looking at. Thank you. Um, there's a, an, another thing here I thought my like is Clive. Clive, has anyone ever told you that you look like Harvey Specter? I think he's <laughs> someone from Suits. Brackets, that's a compliment. So that's good. Oh, I'm very, very there's no nice. such compliment for Riaz yeah. I'm terribly sorry. I don't know who it was. It might, might have been Sanjay. I don't think it was. It says anonymous. But you, you, you've got like a fan Rupert, out there. Rupert, Rupert Murdoch's son, apparently. Um, but, um, I, I didn't like that one. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. We will indeed leave it there. And we have lots more questions. I'm afraid I can't ask them. I will just remind uh, the audience, uh, we didn't have a slide now, unfortunately, but there is the uh, second BTOG lung cancer screening essential update, a really, really popular webinar from last year on Friday, uh, the 11th of June, which is in fact tomorrow. Um, and it says here, uh, it is uh, 9.15 to three o'clock um, and it's got CPD credits. So if you thought my Gosh, I haven't yet signed in for that or logged up, uh, signed up for that. Please do. Uh, essential screening update tomorrow, 9.15, 3 o'clock. If you've got a day off, you, you could just tune in for that instead. Um, we've also got the uh, masterclass on perioperative therapies, which is the end of July. Um, and that is something else to put in your 
diaries. So we're a couple minutes over, so I think we'll call it a day. I'd like to thank again my fantastic panelists, Fiona Blackall, Kai Pidal, and Ria Shah. Thank you also to our colleagues at uh, First Light Media who are behind all of this, and I think run a great shop, uh, show even. Um, and I'd also like to uh, thank Dawn and Gina as ever for coordinating everything. And we wish you a very nice evening. Bye-bye. <laughs>